This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Shut up and sit down. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bullhunter Chronicles podcast. Man, we have a lot of things going on over here. Um, getting our plans finalized for ATA. Um, getting everything uh, all set for that. So looks like we're going to be there again this year, all three days. And um, Frank and Ernie are back from their trip. Uh, they were in Missouri with us, as well as uh, then they moved on to Nebraska. Ernie killed a good 10-point in Nebraska. Real nice deer. And then Frank, oh, Frank. Frank missed a giant um, on that trip. And, you know, in a story that only Frank can tell, but it's the biggest deer he's ever shot at in the woods. So um, that's going to be a good one. Uh, John's on the board with a doe, and that's his first from the saddle. So, um, you know, we've still been after it. Uh, my brother, who was on the podcast a while back from, uh, you know, talking about going out to South Dakota, those go, the boys are back from South Dakota. He shot a nice little seven point and, uh, you know, a couple of his buddies shot some real nice deer out there. And uh, my brother Drew, he uh, he's more of a casual hunter. And uh, he shot his second buck of his life uh, with a rifle on his first sit of the season. So, um, you know, things are happening around here. Um, we're getting everything finalized for our latest Patreon giveaway. Got the sticks in today. Um, so if you haven't heard what uh, what we're doing or you're new to the podcast, um, we have a Patreon page set up for um, the listeners that want to support the show. Uh, listeners make a small donation each month that helps the cost of the uh, podcast, so hosting the podcast and everything like that. And it also allows us to kind of go to these shows and kind of, um, you know, do some, some live podcasts and gear reviews and, and other things like that. Um, but as a way of saying thanks... You know, so we do quarterly giveaways. So we draw one of the Patreons and uh, we put together a package, um, you know, maybe from people that have been on the show or, um, 
you know, just gear that we believe in or things that we think that the listeners might be interested in. So this month, um, this, this quarter's giveaway is a complete saddle hunting kit. So with the buzz around saddle hunting, um, you know, and we've been trying it out, and it's just not one of those things that you can just go anywhere and do. And if you're going to start out from square one, it's a pretty uh, can be a pretty expensive endeavor. Um, so we're giving away just about everything that you need to hunt from a saddle. So climbing system, uh, we're giving away a set of Muddy Pro sticks. Um, platform is uh, artisan outdoor fabrication platform and that mounts to your top your top stick um so you set your sticks and when your sticks are set you're ready to hunt so that's what i've been using all year and and i really like it i don't see any need for anything else um you know that being said i haven't tried the the predator uh, from tethered but um for right now that's what i'm using i really like it so in that setup we've got you know your climbing system set of sticks platform and uh trophy line is donating for us to give away to one of our patreons uh one of their new ambush pro setups so full saddle kit climbing system and a platform so each listener by donating the show basically is putting themselves in in the mix to be drawn for um that so we do similar things like that uh four times a year so that one's going to be going um first week of january and um in addition to that for our patreons we just opened up like so today i just started it so there's nothing on there but a facebook page strictly for our patreons uh so facebook group um to stay in contact and a little bit more seamless way to uh, disseminate information back and forth so we're going to be doing um it's going to be a lot easier to go live during the podcast and when we're at ATA and uh, Total Archery Challenge, stuff like that. So uh, to, to let the, those guys uh, follow along. So, you know, if you're interested in that, you can check that out. Patreon.com forward slash Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And our latest Patreons, just want to give a shout out. Thanks to John Johnson, Michigan guy. Kyle Gensler, Michigan guy. And then Brandon Stone out of North Carolina. So, you know, we've got a lot of different people across the whole United States. And then we've got one Patreon in Switzerland. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, it's going to be a bitch if he wins one of our giveaways because it's going to be really expensive to ship it over there. But uh, we'll figure something out. It'll be great. <laughs> and and so though, um, for everybody that's been asking about the shirts, um, I got the shirts. They're, they're in. Um, and I'm getting them in the mail just as soon as I hear from anybody saying, um, let me know what size and everything like that. Uh, I'll have them up on the website here pretty soon. I just don't have a tally of actually what I have versus, you know, what's, what's for sale, etc. Um, so I'm going to get those on the website and, uh, on our Facebook page just as soon as, as soon as possible, but I do have them in stock. So if you're interested in shirts or you, you've been messaging me, um, those are available. Um, but you know, if you're just here for the podcast, just here for the information, um, you know, you can follow along with us on Facebook, Instagram, and then all of our episodes are uploaded to YouTube as well as some other videos and things like that. You know, please hit the rating device. So five stars on Apple, you know, however it is on Stitcher, Podbean, all of that other stuff. Um, please, you know, that helps us 
uh, move up in the rankings and you know so other people can see us um, but if you don't want to do any any of that you like what we're doing you know just tell a friend that's all we ask and so that that we can reach some more people and um, you know it helps us kind of keep this whole thing rolling so um, really appreciate it great episode for you today I uh, really think you're gonna like it and here we go thanks for listening All right, everybody, we're back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. We've got today a special guest for you, um, a guy that I've been trying to get on this podcast for over a year now. Uh, he gave me a date and a time, and I said, we can do it. So um, this guy, you might know him from the Public Land Challenge, the two-year champion. I'll go ahead and say it first, the Big Buck Serial Killer 2.0, the Carhartt Killer Joe Rentmeester. How are you doing tonight, Joe? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Um, you got all kinds of nicknames, it sounds like. I like well, that. <laughs> well, I mean, going up and doing kind of like the things that you've kind of done over the past couple of years um, in the company that you've done it with, um, I mean, I think they fit, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, Works for me. Uh, you know, people have probably followed along with, um, you know, the hunting public and the public land challenge and all that sort of stuff. Um, but for guys that maybe haven't, or, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and like how you, you started hunting in your, your hunting style, like from the get go. Sure. So the way I guess I started hunting is probably like most people, somebody takes you out and, uh, you, you get excited about it, you get addicted to it and you want to do it more and more. And, uh, the way it kind of started for me was my family had, um, or they still have a 200-acre piece of property. We have about 13 guys that hunt it. Um, bull hunting, there's not as many guys on it. But uh, about half of it's swamp, half of it's crop fields, and then there's a little bit of hardwoods. And uh, we, I get all these pictures of these different bucks, big bucks, um, right out of the gate, actually. There was one that was a booner. And uh, you, you get these pictures, and you just couldn't kill them. You knew they were there, and... I would always bang my head up against the wall trying to figure out, well, how do I kill these stinking things? There's got to be a way to do it. So then I would turn to the, the traditional, well, back then it was like a VCR tape, watch the hunting, hunting videos of the VCR tapes, um, read the magazine articles, and everything you try from all that wouldn't work, wouldn't work. And then uh, I started Google searching it and getting on forums, and someone said, hey, check out um, Dan and Fultz Mar- Marsh Bucks uh, videos, DVD. So I picked up that DVD, and instantly it made, it made sense. It all clicked. And uh, from there, it really took off. Um, now, what I did wrong for quite a while was I hunted that two-acre piece of property for, gosh, I think like four or five years. I just hunted the heck out of it. And Dan would always say things like, you need to um, hunt a spot and then leave it. And I wasn't looking at the picture. And maybe I need to explain on that a little bit better. You'd hunt a spot and uh, completely leave it alone. You wouldn't go in there, run trail cameras in there scout it just leave it alone completely you go in there hunt it if it's no good move on to the next spot and when when dan explained that in those dvs and i was younger i always I, I thought of it in too small of a way i guess you could say because i would take that 200 acre piece of property and bounce from this tree to that tree to this tree to that tree and i would have some success that way but it wasn't um big enough and now i guess when i when i backpedal to what i was doing then compared to what i'm doing now um now it's huge i mean i'm going a mile here, two miles there, uh, an hour drive there. So just really spreading it apart. Um, and that, that might be a great tip for some listeners. I mean, I get a lot of people that message me and 
they asked her advice on their 40 acre piece of property and they explained where their uncle hunts and their brother hunts and, and you can't, you can't have that many people on a 40 acre piece of property and expect consistent success, you know, especially if they're hunting it day after day after day. Um, and, and I guess define success, right? If you're out there in a small buck with a doe or, or maybe that two year old that comes through or in every state's different, it's very situational. Um, you, you can have that success, but I guess if you're hunting mature bucks and you, you really have to, get around you really have to move around be mobile and have a lot of different areas and one of the things that i wanted to to talk to you about is um kind of like your mindset right so yep it's really easy to go into to somewhere and get down on yourself if a you don't see what you are looking for you can say well this is the only spot that i had and it's not working out or there's another guy here or you know um things like that when you first started out, what was your mindset and how has that changed over the years, the the ability to adapt to the hunting situations? Sure. So I, I guess I would say in the beginning, starting out, um, I, I guess I've always been a very stubborn person in the way that if something doesn't work out, I kind of go back to the drawing board. Um, when I was younger, there, there were more times where I would, get in a situation it was difficult whether I'd be tearing through a swamp and it didn't work out and we a lot of people have had those nights where you go into a swamp or you go into the hills and you trip and fall and and all kinds of crazy stuff you just give up for that night um I, I've had a lot of those nights I guess where you go back home and you're like this is stupid why do I even hunt right this is just crazy and then you wait a day you wake up the next morning you're like oh I know I hunt I have to get back out there and, and keep plugging away at this so just that mindset how bad do you want it kind of thing um how has it changed now from in the past? Um, gosh, it's really, I guess I would say it's really stayed the same. Um, I, I leverage a lot of other people and the success that they're having to kind of motivate me. So when I get kind of frustrated with what I'm doing, um, you look at guys like Andy May, you know who he is from Michigan, right? Mm -hmm. I would imagine. Yep. You look at like what he's doing and you look at it, you got to think to yourself, if he's doing it, if there's, if there's somebody doing what I want to be doing, there's a way that I can, I need to be able to figure it out. Right. If, if what you're trying to, achieve, if there's nobody doing what you're trying to achieve, well, then it's a little bit easier to be hard on yourself because is it, is it really possible? I guess that it's a question. Is it really possible? But when somebody's doing what you want to be able to do, you, you can kind of use that as a driving force to try and achieve what they're doing. I, I don't know if that's a good way to word it or explain it, but the way I think about it. Well, yeah. And I think that that's what, you know, kind of, we are inspired by guys like yourself, guys like Andy May, guys like the hunting public, um, you know, obviously Dan, you know, seeing these guys that do it consistently and then on public mm -hmm. land and, and just go out there and in the same manner that anybody can do it. it, it it's not, you know, 4,000 acres in Iowa or, you know, something like that that's managed and you know you're naming all of these deer and, and doing all of these things right um yeah but as far as that mindset one of the things and i, I kind of want to go through like some of your hunts here but like this sure. year you know you killed the buck um in a manner that i think is like the the pinnacle um at least for me like when i look at you, you know you say there's guys out there that are doing things and, and now you know that it can be done. So to shoot a deer in his bed and video it while he's laying there, um, 
that, that to me is like you knew a hundred percent of the pieces of the puzzle or right. you, you had it figured out enough and it all fell into place. And it's probably a combination of both of those, but I want to back yep. up from that just a little bit as on that same hunt. I feel like, you know, we've all went in and it all depends on the mindset, but when you blow a buck out of there or a target buck or whatever, when you, <laughs> when you mess up, right. It's real easy yep. for most people to just throw in the towel and say that that deer's gone. He's not going to be um, around anymore and get really down because, you know, that's what everybody tells you is that, you know, mature bucks, you only get one opportunity. You know, if you screw them up, you know, they're, you, you're not going to have another opportunity on them. Um, so right. take us through that hunt and like kind of like your thought process and kind of how you came to that conclusion. Sure. So I guess for people that don't know the exact story of what happened, um, you can catch the video on the Hunting Beast YouTube page, but I guess I'll kind of give a little um, story of what happened. So I always take off the first, I always take a week of vacation for the first week of bull hunting here in Wisconsin, which is uh, middle of September usually. And uh, I took my first week of vacation and I just did what I always do and I, I was bouncing spots where I had seen deer in the summer or had trail cam pictures or was reading the sign up there there and I was bouncing around and... Uh, Towards the end of my week off, I got to a point where I was actually hunting a field edge, a soybean field edge, and uh, so the night that I was going in to set up, the night before that I was going in to set up, um, basically what it was was there was a there was an apple tree, um, a bean in the middle of two fields. There was a bean field on one side, a sorghum field on the other side, and then it, the apple tree, um, the fence line that the apple tree was on, led down to a small sliver of hardwood, and. Uh, when I got down to that small sliver of hardwood, there was a very faint trail that came out of the sorghum. So I felt it was just, it was just very faint. You couldn't see any tracks on it because it was raining that night. Um, but I felt like I need to be able to shoot that trail just in case. But I also wanted to catch anything looping up through the beans to come up to that apple tree because you could tell that was being hit very hard. But uh, what happened was I, I got set up. Um, and then fairly early, so there was a front coming through, but fairly early, we had, I had a different buck come out into the field. Um, he was like 150 yards out. It was like a 125 inch buck. Um, but he came out into the field. Some different does started coming past me. Eventually, that buck would have come past me, but the the other does smelled me and took the whole field with him. Everything went blowing out of the field. And uh, I gave it a few minutes. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, how I was going to how I was going to handle it. And I decided I was going to get down, get out of the tree, because I figured those deer were blown into the woods a little ways. That way, I could get out of there and then adjust appropriately for the next night and be set up over there, because those the other thing to think about, too, is are those deer going to get my scent? Maybe, maybe not. So I, I wonder um, if they're going to get my scent, maybe they won't be back the next night doing a similar thing. Um, if they didn't, then I'm in the game. So I started getting down early, and uh, when I, I was in, using a saddle that night, and when I swattened the, the saddle platform around the tree, it clanked. And uh, right below me in the sorghum, I saw this buck, the buck that I ended up shooting with tearing off. So he was actually sneaking in through the sorghum kind of in a little a little different direction. It's kind of unique. It's kind of, I wish I would have videoed a little bit better to show it. Um, but I saw him go tearing off straight back into, it's basically a drainage dish that he was bedding in. And in the drainage dish, there's some high ground with some trees. And uh, from past experience, the, the bucks had always bedded in the point of this, of these high trees. It's, it's a very specific spot. And uh, I'm trying to think which, which of Dan's videos is. He's, he, Dan's got a video where I actually have a video of a buck um, laying in the bed. We were driving by with our snowmobiles one time. I was laying there, and 
um, ran back home and grabbed the video camera, but they're always laying in almost the exact same spot. And I knew that because I didn't um, blow him right out of the bed, he didn't get a smell of me. All he heard was a big clank in the tree that wasn't natural. So I, I felt very confident that he would be coming back because of that. And, uh, and I guess that's, that's a big a key point is if they don't smell you, um, the, the jig is not up. Once they smell you, yeah, it's, it's a little trickier. They relocate. Um, and even another example I'll give of that kind of thing is when I was hunting down by Dan last winter, um, in the marsh by him, I had, there was a buck. It was almost a booner, very old deer. Um, and this thing kept watching me in the tree. It was circling around me, feeding in the cattails. And it kept watching me in the tree. And uh, it was never bothered by me. I was kind of moving around, never bothered by me. And then suddenly he circled just to the point where he could smell me and he took off. And that was a huge eye-opening lesson to me that these, these, they're not that smart. I mean, they're animals. They're, they're using their nose. Um, if they smell danger, that confirms it for them. They're going to get out of there. But it, that's another thing, I guess, too, that I would point out is the more experiences you can have in the woods, the, the more you have to fall back on to lean on to um, confirm and um, figure out what's going to happen in the future. So basically with this hunt, um, the next morning I got circled around. The wind was good where I could get off on a certain point, and that, that way when the deer came back in, he wouldn't cut my track. Um, I actually came from the road up through some corn, and a lot of people talk about jay hooking, and the, the, I didn't feel as though the deer would jay hook through the corn sideways. If you could picture a buck dragging himself through the corn sideways, it just didn't make sense to me that a deer would do that. So I got came right up through the corn row, got right on the edge, and uh, the buck, it, in the early season, you see it a lot with the bucks, they'll come in, an hour before light, and he was actually in below me an hour before light, and I could kind of see him below me in the moonlight. And uh, he came in. I At that point, I pretty much decided I was going to kill him, and then he was a little closer to me than I would have liked him. Um, the way I was set up, the main bed is more so 30 yards to my right, um, and then I actually heard a different deer going to the main bed. So when I heard the other deer going to the main bed, I knew that this one below me was probably the, the satellite buck. The one in the bed was probably bigger but I didn't know of anything that was substantially bigger. So I decided I was going to shoot the one below me. Um, when it got light out, I looked over at the main bed. I couldn't see anything in it um, because it was bedded down and I didn't look hard enough probably. But uh, I shot this one, the, the, the buck that I ended up killing. I shot him. And then when I turned to the camera and started talking, the one to my right in the bed jumped up and he was substantially bigger. Actually, this is a buck I'd never seen before, but uh, definitely a mature animal, but it was a pretty cool hunt. It was, it just worked out pretty slick and it made it pretty cool for video for people to see how that stuff can work. Well, yeah. And like I said, for me, I think that that's like the ultimate, right? Is like you said, I know where that deer is going to go. I went there and I killed him. Now on that note, like let's say that you did notice that that other buck was in there and he was substantially bigger. And now you've got this yep. one. I mean, if you look at it from the video and from the GoPro angle, it looks like that deer's, you know, damn near at the base of your tree. Um, yep. What do you do? How, how would you have adjusted at that point? Well, for me, in that situation, the one thing that I kept looking at, um, I kept watching the buck below me, and he kept licking his nose. And when they're licking their nose, they're freshening it up to try and pull in smells. And it doesn't mean he was catching whiffs of me at all. Um, he may have been, that was maybe what he was doing, but I was getting a little bit nervous that he might her out of there. But, uh, had I known that that other buck was over there, I would have had no problem with this one getting away on me. 
Um, and even if this one would have uh, smelled me and jumped up, it would have gotten the other buck to jump up and try and figure out what was going on. Um, I guess that's a risk I would have definitely taken considering the size of the other buck. This is how I would have handled that. And so have you shot, I mean, I haven't seen all the videos that you've done, uh, but have you shot mm-hmm. deer in their beds like that? No, I've the- not shot them in their not in their bed like that. I've had many situations where uh, they'll be. I can hear them come in in uh, gray, or I can see them coming in gray light, or I can hear them coming in the dark. And I see it quite often that they'll bed down in the dark. And if I would have waited long enough, I can almost guarantee that this buck eventually would have stood up and either shifted or moved around or fed a little bit. I don't know if it would have taken an hour or two hours, but. I see it a lot. You can hear them bed down, and then eventually they stand back up, and that's when you can get your shot. That was that was what I intended to do with the main bed, because that buck would have eventually stood up and shifted around. Even the specific bed, I've run trail cameras over it, and I've even on the, in the trail cam videos and photos, you see it, they'll bed down, and then they'll stand up throughout the day and move over, and they're off the camera for a while, and they're on the camera for a while. and It's broad daylight, and they're in their bedding area, and they, they just move around, and they offer you shots big thing with that is you really have to be careful with your wind that your wind's not gonna not gonna hit them at any point or swirl and that's the neat part about this particular setup that i had was it was just it was a cluster of trees in a um fence line over crop field so i got really high so that my wind wouldn't swirl because if you got kind of got down in that drainage ditch you could picture the wind swirling um so my thing with that was just get really high in the tree and keep that scent over them and i guess it worked out my main takeaway from that though and when kind of what i wanted to you know portray to the listener was like a the the motivation you know that it can be done and i mean it's mm-hmm. it's videoed and, and you know to do that and self film it is you know a, a, a feat in itself on any deer because the more i do it the more i realize how hard it is to do it well um but to be able to have you know quote unquote screwed up the night before and then kill one of those bucks the next day, you know, exactly the plan. It's like most people will get down on themselves. Like if you boot a buck out of an area, if you, you know, make that quote unquote mistake, it's really easy Mm -hmm. to, like you said, you know, go home and take a couple days off and say, why do I even do this? Um, But you said, nope, tomorrow I'm just going to go over there and kill him. And I think that, you know, the guys that are successful and I, you know, we talked about it a lot when we were getting ready for our elk hunts and things like that, but you know, the killer mentality to say, I'm going there to kill this deer, this elk, this animal tomorrow, this day, every hunt is to kill, not necessarily to hope or to, um, you know, you've, you've put everything in place to, to get it done. Um, and I, I think that that's where a lot of guys, um, don't necessarily fail, but they don't go into it with that sort of like thought process, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's hard to have a good attitude. Um, especially like I felt like I was slightly defeated. I mean, I pounded hard the whole entire week. Um, I hunted almost every morning. I had a lot of spots I was trying out. So it's hard not to get down, down on yourself and, you, you saying what you're saying reminds me of uh, last season I ended up, last year I ended up eating my Wisconsin tag because I was holding out for a specific buck. But during the last week, um, I was started hunting some new areas, 
and I actually I jumped up a buck, and it, I was just so personally, I was just so kind of frustrated and down on myself. If you dig on the hunting beast, I actually made a post because I wanted confirmation. I wanted affirmation that that people had had experiences where they jumped up bucks and they came back to bed. So I mean, for me to say I don't get frustrated, don't get down on myself, I do. But then I looked. I I personally looked last year for the reason to get back out in the morning. I, I made a post on the hunting beast and I said, "How many people have had this happen? Tell me about the story." Because I just I was I knew what I needed to do, but I wanted that um, that boost in confidence, that little bit of inspiration. And, and sometimes you, you're not going to get the you, you know some people don't have that internal motor that just makes them want to go go go. And if you don't have that, try and find it in other people. Find different ways to get get going. You know it's. I don't know how to say it better, but sometimes you have to find that motivation other places. You can't get it from yourself. Well, and that, like I say, that's one of the things why I wanted to do this podcast because, you know, last year, you know, you went out to Minnesota and a property that you've never set foot on and were able to kill mm-hmm. a, a really nice buck out there. Then, um, I couldn't get, I couldn't get you on the podcast. So I started talking to you. I heard you on an, another podcast and, um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, so I got back in touch with you. You killed that deer yeah. this year in Wisconsin with a, a, you know, overcoming some adversity there. And then this year's public land challenge, you come to our home state of Michigan. And then I feel like you guys encountered nothing but adversity and you were able to kill another buck. Um, you know, with extenuating circumstances, um, being what it was. So, uh, with the, those public land challenges, um, how did they, they differ from state to state being Minnesota and Michigan? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess with Minnesota, it was fairly strategic because we, it was, we were acorn focused, right? So with Minnesota, it was the first, um, or I'm sorry, the middle of September, the second last week of September. So what we were looking for was, and you probably heard this from Dan a thousand times, but we were looking for the secluded oaks. Um, we're looking for those spots. Like If you look at like Hill Country, for example, the oaks are everywhere, so those deer don't have to move. They can stand up in their beds, eat right there. Um, but we were looking for where the bucks had that. They, they couldn't bed in the oaks, but they were bedding next to the oaks, and you could catch them moving, and you knew, you knew that they were going to be there. So once we found what we were looking for, it was pretty simple. We just started island hopping. Um, and in that case, it was islands. I guess not every terrain is going to be islands. You might have, like in Michigan, there are oak flats that people are hunting. Um, but that, that was pretty simple. It was just a matter of bouncing around until you, until you got to that point. Now, Michigan was a little bit different because we tried both um, swamp land. It was, it was a type of swamp land. And we tried... Um, how do I describe it? it? It was kind of like hill country. Um, it wasn't like a super aggressive type hill country, but we had deer in both spots. So we actually kind of bounced between spots. Um, it was almost like every other day we went from one spot to the other um, and just stayed in the action. Uh, Michigan was actually a big surprise to me and to us. Uh, if, if you watched the video, um, I believe it was day two, was when Jake and I hunted that soybean field and we had all those deer come up that so i mean you know that was quite impressive we had i think there were like 12 does that night if i remember right in those two rocks i don't know that was the third night there were like 12 does um but it was just with with the michigan one we really had to just keep moving around until we put ourselves in the right place we had to um 
kind of adapt where the pressure was. We did see it, it was kind of interesting. For, once the day two video was released, the parking lot filled up, and I think it. Some of the guys acknowledged they had seen a video, they recognized the spot, and other guys were just headed headed out to hunt for the weekend. Um, but we we had to just keep kind of staying one step ahead of everybody. Even on the night that we ended up killing, we had that guy push deeper than we had ever been, so we had to quickly jump down and push deeper than him. So it was the, the Michigan one was a lot of moving around, a lot of bouncing around. Um, not as strategic. It was kind of everything was very situational. You had to kind of look at what was going on and uh, take your past experiences and and use them to predict what was going to happen where you needed to be, kind of thing. So I want to kind of take apart both of those um, a little bit because yeah, from the the Minnesota one, you know, I personally I can see in my own. Uh, hunting experience uh, this year that it it, kind of like boggles my mind that you guys were able to do that just in the sense where you look at a map and you see this these islands but to go all the way out there and find that there was oaks you know dan always talks about the hunting beast you know oak islands get out there and find these oaks and like you said it's just easier said than done well and you know for myself and my buddy this year and I kind of shown you where we were going to messaging back and forth but you know we went down in our our river bottom system that we've got here and there's you know you 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 take the canoe in and you go up and there's these islands and there's this high ground and it looks like you know there's hardwoods in there and we're like there's got to be oaks in there you know we walked for a mile in there all the way out there and there wasn't one oak tree there's nothing and it's like, yep. okay, so we were banking on that. So now what? And, you know, so to to look at a map and say, you know, you look, is there something specific that you're looking at when you're looking at Google Earth or, um, you know, Onyx yeah, that says it, that here's here's going to be oaks versus like where we were at was everything is a maple tree? Yep. Uh, and I'll be honest, I'm a little bit new to the Oak Island um, hunting game as well. For me, it's always been in the early season. It's always... You, you find like maybe a point that has that jets out into a swamp or a cedar swamp, tamarack swamp, whatever it is. You'll find a point with some acorns on it and you use that. Um, you never have anything. It's pretty rare to find it perfect like we had it um, in Minnesota or like down by Dan. He hunts a lot of acorn islands. He's got some perfect islands. Um, but I guess if you're looking on a map, the thing that I've learned, I guess, to look for is because you can't tell what's what, you're looking for island that's surrounded by just just simple cattails. If you start seeing like other brushy patches of stuff on the cattails, you don't know if that's another island or an oak tree, and it's hard to figure out what the size of the other stuff is. So, I mean, you could you could zoom way out on a map, figure out where all the swamps are, and then you want to just find where it's just simply cattails, or, or in Minnesota, it was like canary grass, it was some kind of grasses, where it's just, it's a complete transition change. Because um, on a map, it can be, even like when we were in, Michigan, it was kind of deceiving as to what it was. We thought we were looking at a cattail swamp with islands when it was really that little sphagmite. So, it, it, does this, does that make sense? I guess you're, you're looking for where you're looking for an island in the middle of an ocean of cattails. Yeah, to, to simplify it. Yeah, but I mean, you know, so I'm in Michigan, so everything that we were looking at was canary grass and just not cattails <laughs> so yeah. but but yeah. from a map it's 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 difficult to to discern from that you know thirty thousand foot view or whatever 
Yeah, um, until you actually get out there, and that's almost that, that's a better thing to do, um, like for myself included, because I I tried to hunt the the Acorn Islands myself a little bit more this early season, and uh, it just it didn't do well for me. And that's something this coming spring that I'll be um, putting some miles on some new areas and putting some pins on the maps to save them for next year and make some notes next to them where the acorn trees and where the acorn trees are and, and what acorn trees are going to be the first ones that they hit. Cause that's another important thing too, um, is when you do have an acorn Island, those deer are going to hit the first available acorns and then they're going to stop. They're not going to move more than likely before dark. They're not going to move any further. They're just going to feed at those trees. So you have to be at the closest dropping tree to where they're coming from, where you're going to, you're going to be skunked. And a lot of times, too, you can kind of, if you look, you can kind of tell what tree or trees they're feeding under just by how turned up it is. You can kind of tell by reading the sign. Right. And so in Minnesota, um, we talked about it a little bit before the um, podcast, but the deer that we were seeing, what was like the age class or, or the differences in the deer that you saw there versus Michigan? And then what's the tag situation like in Minnesota? Yep, so Minnesota was a tag situation pretty much just like Wisconsin. You you get your one, um, uh, your archery tag, and then uh, I believe you get your gun tag too. I don't know because we weren't there for that. Now, they, uh, Mich, uh, Minnesota has their um, their gun seasons like right in the middle of the rut. So I, from my understanding, they take a heck of a beating on their deer that way. Um, and now where we were too, the thing that helped in our situation in Minnesota was that we were so far back that those deer had not experienced or dealt with any humans. Um, so that deer we caught by complete surprise, basically. Um, in terms of age structure, we didn't see a ton of deer to get a good taste of that. Um, I would say they're comparable to Wisconsin deer, um, body size, age structure. We saw like a two and a half on like our second night hunt. Um, I, I did with, I think Ted was filming me. Dan had like a one and a half year old that was, I don't know what you'd call him, just a, just a little basket rack, kind of comparable to what we have here in Wisconsin. I would say it was very comparable. But then when we went to Michigan, it was interesting because um, you, you'd look at a deer and there was a deer that John Eberhardt was talking about. And he's like, oh, that's a two and a half. And in Wisconsin, it would have absolutely been a one and a half year old just looking at the size of the body. And, uh, and I believe John from what he was pointing out, some of the different details, but you guys just, for where we were in kind of the, the middle of the state, the, the body size of the deer were smaller. Um, the racks of the deer were smaller. Um, even with the one I shot, some people said, oh, that's a three-year-old. Some people said that's a two-year-old. I, I couldn't tell you what it was. If that deer was in Wisconsin, that would be a one-and-a-half, maybe a two-and-a-half. So you, you guys definitely have a different in that regards for sure. Now, um, there was a different buck out there that was leaving a lot of the bigger sign. Um, Tim, our marketing guy on the hunting beast, had actually seen the other bigger buck. And then uh, after we left, uh, we had two different people, I believe, send us trail cam pictures of that other buck. And it was like a 120-inch buck. Um, gosh, I, I couldn't tell you how old it was. It, it looked mature, but then again, it had a smaller body. So it was it, it's very weird. Uh, you guys probably have a better eye for it coming from that state, I would imagine. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard. Everybody here yeah. is just so down on the state. Um, yep. you know, and it, it really is coming back, you know, but the way that, you know, the reason I was asking about the tags is, I mean, obviously you saw the way that Michigan worked is you buy the combo tags, so you yep. can kill two bucks. There's no, you know, there's antler point restrictions on the second one. 
depending on what area, what zone, what, what everything you're in. Um, so mm-hmm. everywhere we're hunting right now, you can kill whatever you want with whatever you want, kind of. Um, sure. And, and we, we saw what that kind of did to you guys too, where I ended up killing my buck. There was a group of guys that would go in there and I don't know if they, they would use their second tag as a doe tag or not, or what they would do, but they I believe they took out three, one and a half year old bucks in the first few days. And, and I can kind of understand that mindset. You, you shoot your buck and then you've got your buck and the pressure's off and now you can go chase something bigger. So I can see how that kind of might hurt you guys. Not that they're, I have anything against it. I mean, if, if they want to shoot a one and a half year old buck and it gets them excited and fired up, they should. But I can see when you go in and you shoot all those, I can see what that does to you in terms of and start getting those two and three and four year olds, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, so for us, we're a big proponent of the one buck tag, but because of the way that Michigan is and the revenue that they get, um, you know, they're not going to do that. Um, Okay. Personally, I think, and, and you know, everything being equal, I killed a one and a half year old buck this year. First one from the saddle, first one from the um, first one that I killed on video, and yeah, I'm ecstatic. I, w- I would if I only had one buck oh, yeah. tag, I'd be perfectly content. Um, yep. Because I I I met my goals that I set for this year because those are the two things. Uh, well, there's three things because I wanted to make pastrami out of the the deer then and that was the main that was my main motivation but you know i would be perfectly content if that was my my deer for the year that being said it may have changed the way that i approached my hunt um Mm -hmm. and i think that that's the one thing that we're getting away from so even if we were allowed two bucks but you had to register the first one and the second one had to be four on one side or some sort of antler point restriction where that's the way that it's supposed to be. But you had both those tags in your pocket and you killed one with four on one side. So you could have tagged yep. that buck with your restricted tag and then went out right. the last day of the season and killed a year and a half old. Right. And Yeah, so it can happen either way. Right, right. Yep. And, you know, it, that is what it is. But, um, you know, so when you guys came to... Michigan, uh, and I kind of talked to you a little bit before you came to Michigan and, you know, we talked to Dan and you guys had conflicting, um, stories, you know, there's big deer everywhere and people are going to kill you. Um, what were your expectations coming into the state, uh, for this public land challenge, um, and your strategy before you got to Michigan and then how did it change as you got, got into the, the hunting actually? Yeah. So, my answer would be exactly the same as Dan's. As uh, before we went, we had no idea what we'd be getting into. And then uh, just driving, as I was driving there that first day and just looking at the, the countryside along the highway and seeing how much, how much uh, I don't know, good quality deer habitat you guys have, um, that, that I started to become optimistic pretty quick. And then the first day, Dan and I started driving around and we're seeing deer all along the highways. And we're like, holy crap, this is way better than we had, had expected. Um, the thing that I think is interesting for you guys, you have tons of does. Um, I, I had one, I was talking to one Michigan guy and he said that a lot of people look at the, um, the does in Michigan almost as sacred, like that's your doe factory. And that was kind of interesting to me. Would you, have you ever heard that before? Would you agree with that? They're, that's kind of your, the, the does are kind of your factory to have more bucks so nobody shoots them. Is that a, correct? Uh, you know, uh, to a degree, I mean, so, uh, John who couldn't be here tonight, but you know, he grew up, his whole family, they never shot does ever. Okay. They, his dad was mad when he shot his first doe at 
18 years old or something like that. Really? And, okay. but they had no problem killing two year and a half old bucks. I mean, that Michigan, I think has a culture of, of, I don't think maybe it's as strong as Wisconsin, um, maybe a, right on par, especially as you get into Northern Michigan and the UP, as far as rifle yeah. camp and that sort of thing. Um, our rifle hunting tradition and the deer camps are, you know, that tradition is strong, but okay. there's a lot of, I just got, I, I got to shoot my buck guy. And okay. yep. the way that Michigan does their doe permits also is Michigan almost treats it that way. You know, we don't have any yep. sort of mandatory registration, so it's all kind of estimate wise as far as what was actually harvested versus, you know, what they think was harvested. And, sure. You know, yep. Yep. It makes it very confusing. I, I was told they take some some uh, surveys here and there too. They, they, I don't. I don't remember how they explained it, but yeah, it was very interesting how they do that. Yeah, and and so you know, a lot of people are looked down upon, you know, by shooting does, and they don't do that, and you know, you can't shoot the does okay. because those are what bring the bucks around, and uh, it, it's weird. Okay. You know, my family, I grew up. Yeah. We we were in uh, eight miles from Wisconsin, Menominee County, and um, yep. we were in like for many years was the highest deer population in Michigan as far as does and they gave out the most doe permits and we never killed okay. bucks to speak of. Um, sure. but we killed a lot of does. So uh, me coming from the, like the opposite side of that spectrum, but yeah. Yeah. And I guess the, the thing I would say about Michigan, if I had to compare Michigan to where I live, um, I would say you guys, well, the area we were in, I would say that, um, the big bucks are there, just like back home. Numbers-wise, in terms of the big bucks, the trophy buck, the one that everybody wants, I would say it's probably similar to where I am, but you guys just have a lot more does. So for me, it's not uncommon to sit and just not see any deer, period, um, out there. it was If you didn't see a few does run by, um, it was kind of a surprise, I guess. I, I would tell the mission guys not to get down on themselves. I mean, if you're, if you're a trophy hunter, they're definitely there. Um, and another thing too, look, look what Michigan has done to somebody like Andy Mayer, John Eberhardt. You become a product of your environment, right? So if you're born in, um, Ohio or Iowa, not to bash those guys, but you don't have difficult hunting. You don't have to learn. You don't, you don't have to learn different tactics outside the box things to get it done. You can just get out there during the rut and catch a buck running by crazy and get excited about it, which is cool too. But. I guess for the Michigan guys that want to get down on themselves, I would say flip it and and use it as a way to um, become a better hunter because if you can kill in Michigan or in my part of Wisconsin, I believe, um, if you can get it done, you're you're a product of your environment. You come out of there and you go to another state, and you just kick butt. You know you're gonna you're gonna be a foot up on a lot of guys. And you you look at a lot of these guys like Greg Miller. Um, gosh, I can't remember half of them. But they came. For, a lot of them came from very difficult to hunt states. Uh, Scott Buckley, he came from Michigan, so he had to learn how to get it done in a very difficult state. And now he goes to Iowa and just smashes giants. So, coming from a difficult state or, or hunting in a difficult state, that's a good thing. That makes you a, a better hunter than everybody else, in my opinion. If you can get it done, you know, you're if that's your goal, I guess. Right. I like to look at it that way. And so, um, kind of back to, so we established that, uh, you know, when you guys came here, you know, you had one sort of expectation and then you, you know, were 
kind of surprised as the amount of deer and everything. But, yep. you know, another, you know, you guys were hit with a ton of adversity. I mean, it was monsoon rains and uh, right. the spots that you were hunting was, um, you know, just completely flooded. What made you continue to hunt those flooded areas? For, and, and, you know, from my understanding, there were quite a ways from camp. Um, why did you continue to go back to those areas versus finding something um, maybe a little bit more easy to hunt or more comfortable sure. to hunt, I guess? Yep. So the flooding actually worked out to our advantage. So the flooding, all the stuff that flooded was where most of the deer would normally be bedding down in the river bottoms where it's kind of mucky and nasty and brushy and thick. And uh, with the flooding, everything, all those little dry bogs that the deer would be sitting on were completely eliminated, so it pushed them up into the hills. It actually made it better for us, it, and I think that's part of why we saw so many deer, because it, they couldn't sit down in the river bottoms and feed. They were pushed up into the hills where things are a little bit crazy. Um, so for us to drive anywhere else and go try and find something um, that's a little bit better almost would have been crazy. It was, it, it pushed the deer into our lap, so to speak. And, you know, like I said, with the adversity, I mean, you know, you guys were, you know, somewhat forced to hunt, right? So you were given this time yep. frame yep. and, you know, taken off of work, time from family, you know, uh, to make things even more pressure of, you know, being filmed the entire time and documenting the whole story in a difficult state. Um, sure. You know, you, you guys kind of were forced to endure, Right. But I think one of the things that kind of blew my mind was on that last hunt, you know, where you did end up killing, um, you know, you, you had every hunter's like nightmare, you know, so to speak, as you, right. you were set up in the perfect amount of time you were there kind of where you wanted to be, give or take. And you got guys walk right underneath you and a lot of guys right. would be pissed and throw in the towel and just say, well, I can't do this. Um, a couple things. One, if that happened to you at home, would you have reacted the same? Cause you weren't on the same timetable. Um, did that come into oh, no. factor or, or, and then, and then what made you decide to do, you know, kind of what you did that ended up everything working out? Yeah. I, back home, I would have absolutely done the same thing. Um, my, I only get to, the way my work works. I only get to hunt two, maybe three nights a week. And then I have a fair amount of vacation, but, um, with only two or three nights a week, if I'm hunting in the evening and someone comes rolling in on me, I'm going to absolutely get down and adjust because that, that night that I have to be able to hunt is kind of precious to me. Um, I can hunt almost any morning, which is nice. Um, but yeah, I would have absolutely done the same thing. And then uh, what, what was your follow-up question to that? What, what led us to do that? Um, so once you, um, once you got down and made that decision, yep. um, how did you end up in the spot that you did and take us through kind of like the, the rest of that hunt? Sure. Yep. So, um, when those guys came down in on us, he, he told us, the guy told us that he was going to go about 250 yards back. So we, we looped entirely around them to not mess with them. And then when we got back deeper, um, what, what we started noticing was that, um, it, it started getting thicker, right? So everything was very open. You could kind of, it was like a, just an open hardwoods. A lot of people can picture that. A lot of people hunt that. And you could just see the entire open hardwoods. 
I mean, you, you just don't see a lot of deer bedding in that. I mean, you get your doles and your smaller bucks that'll bed in little pockets in there. Um, but if you're after a decent bucket, they're just not bedding out in that open hardwoods too often. It, obviously, in northern Michigan, it's a whole different story. I don't really know anything about that. But um, in these pressure-type areas. Now, as the, the way it was shaped, it was a, like a great big ridge that was flat on the top that went back. I would say but the entire ridge probably went back like 1,200 yards. Um, we went back 900 yards from the field. And it kind of goes to a point, and you could see on the map the, the way it went to a point and then tapered down. And it, it looked a little bit thicker on the map, but as we got closer to that point, it started getting really thick. And you could see um, when we got into our kill spot, you could see on the ground where all the deer were staging. And when you get into a deer, a buck staging area or a doe staging area or whatever where they're feeding, you can tell there's just tracks everywhere, and they're, they're kind of random. And if you watch that video of the buck ended up killing, and you watch how he walks around underneath that oak tree just feeding. He did, he did a lot of moving around. And you just picture the amount of tracks that that deer just left under that one tree. That's what we were seeing um, in the spot that we ended up setting up. So we knew we were right tight in there. Um, I, did, I did. I have a bad habit of pushing too far sometimes. So I did want to push just a fuzz further, maybe 20 or 30 yards more. But Jake's like, I think we should set up right here. We did blow just past where we... Um, set up we did blow a deer off there's like a little knob that's in the video you can see the bed that wore around and where that bed is too that deer is sitting right on whatever that deer was that we jumped it was sitting right on the um right on the edge of the thick and the open hardwoods and it can see everything coming through the open hardwoods and i don't know if that was i don't think that was the buck i ended up shooting what i think happened there was i think it was a smaller buck if you watch in the video um the buck i shot there was like a one and a half year old with it um, but what I think happened is we jumped up that smaller one-and-a-half-year-old buck, and he ran back into the main bedding area, and it got the deer on their feet. And I, I've seen that quite a bit at home, like in the swamps, where um, you jump up one deer, it gets all the deer up, and pretty soon you have the deer up and moving early. And uh, they, they'll run back there, they'll be spooked, or they won't know what you are, and they aren't terribly spooked, and it doesn't alert the other deer too bad. Because um, I think what happened was that, that one-and-a-half-year-old was slightly spooked, and he kind of stayed back there, and then that, the one I ended up shooting got up on his feet, started feeding, and that's why the smaller one came in second. And that's kind of a guess, um, but that's what ended up happening ultimately. And so um, what was different about that hunt than, you know, all of the much bigger deer that you've killed, you know, all over the country? Because um, that kind of had you shook a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it did. So I... I <laughs> there's a lot of reasons for that, I guess. Just that I wanted to kill him so bad, right? And I had him cutting in and out of holes, and I didn't want to take a shot over 30 yards, and he was at like 35 and then 40, and then I wasn't sure if he was going to go back in the cover or come past me, so that really started rattling me. Um, one one thing that I was kind of joking about with Dan is when, if you think about it, um, let's say you shoot a buck on video and that video gets 100,000 views, when you're in that tree, and maybe I shouldn't think about it this way, it sounds really stupid, but when you're in that tree, picture picture an audience of 100,000 people. You know, so if, if I take a shot and I shoot the thing in the ass or something, that you got an audience of 100,000 people watching that, right? So I think that put a little bit of pressure on me, whereas at home, if I don't have to show the video, right? Whereas this was going to be on video no matter what. Um, and then, uh, what was the other part? There are kind of three parts to it that kind of rattled me. Just, just how... Well, and I guess just the whole week, you, you pound the whole week, the whole week, and I turn over and I see that deer, and I'm like, crap, I'm like, this is my last shot, we're leaving tomorrow, if I don't kill this thing, this is it, you know, this is for all the money, so, it, it, yeah, I think that a lot of that played into it, 
if it were at home, I would have been just kind of calm and calculated like usual and shot him. And <laughs> it would have been simple. And communicating with Jake made it difficult too, because uh, I didn't know he couldn't hear me and he didn't know I couldn't hear him. And that was kind of a mess. And he wanted to get it on video. And so obviously, I guess I did too, but that made it harder. Just a whole lot of crazy stuff going on. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty it, cool though. Yeah, and, and that's a thing for the viewer to, you know, to, to see that and to see the excitement, you know, because I think that that is, you know, what most people feel because they, you know, maybe haven't killed as many deer or whatever. And, you know, especially for like our listener, um, you know, that's why we do it. We get super excited. And, you know, when, when guys like the Drewries or whatever, they just shoot one and they say, oh, that was Moses or Thor or whatever. And (laughs) I'm really happy that I got to kill him. And, you know, they don't get excited. Right. And, and, right. and that's awesome. But one of the things, and uh, you can answer this however you want to, um, but amongst our podcast, um, there, there's been some speculation that uh, the whole Carhartt killer thing, uh, that you killed that deer in Michigan in um, jeans and, uh, you know, whatever, uh, based on you know, you kept mentioning John Eberhardt and he's very well known for his scent control, scent oh, lock, sure. everything. And it's public land, Michigan. You've got to be, you know, you can't kill one in Michigan if you're not, you know, X. Uh, yeah. You know, the deer you killed in, in in Wisconsin, you were wearing camouflage and, uh, yeah. you know, everything like that. Um, was that, how how much of that came into play? None of it was really because of the sandlock side of things. Um, mainly it's just because I'm cheaper than hell. Uh, those are, I, I've got some rentals out here back home and those are my, um, pants that I wear when I'm working on those or, um, when I'm hunting. It, it really doesn't make a difference. And like, we had all that rain. So my, I have one pair of, uh, two pairs of camouflage pants, one for warm weather, one for cold weather. Um, those were all soaked and nasty from the rain and that's what I had left. So that's what I wore. But I, as long as like the, I guess I look at the color of the pants a little bit. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of black pants. I've, one time I was hunting in a swamp, and Tyler Wood, or Big Hunt, they call him, he was on the other side of the swamp, and I had some really dark camouflage, and he took a picture of me up in the tree, and I looked like a black grizzly bear. So <laughs> ever since then, I, I just want something that's a little bit lighter. Like that, I had a uh, uh, light Carhartt color, and then there was a brown pair that I was wearing as well. Um, and then I had a gray sweatshirt. Grays seemed to blend in pretty well in the woods. Um, but I didn't care. The one, the one thing I will say, I've gotten a lot of crap for, um, it's like the buck in Minnesota, I wasn't wearing a hat. I didn't have face paint. Um, the buck in the bed, I wasn't wearing a hat. I didn't have face paint. And, uh, the THP guys were giving me some crap for that. And I thought that was funny. So when I ended up not shooting this with a, with no hat and no face paint, and no face mask, it was kind of funny. Um, now I, I will say, I, if I were going in on, on a big old mature buck, I would probably, I guess I can't even say that because that was, that was the plan when I went. Um, I, I had full intentions of killing that buck back home here. But is face paint necessary? It's not a bad idea, I guess, because you picture that bleach, your bleach white face in the tree just really sticks out. Um, but I don't know. I guess, the whole no hat, no face mask thing I thought was kind of funny, the, the way it worked out. And I got a lot of crap for it. So, Well, I think it's that hilarious cool. because you know, there's so many people that want to push product. They want to do Ozonics. They want to do Scentlock. They want right. to do, 
you know, this camouflage. They want to do this face paint. They want to do, you know, ghillie suits. They want to do everything, you know, that kind of like makes money or, you know, that's right. the, and, and I think for so long, you know, you hear that stuff pounded down your throat and you're like, well, I have to do this. I have to do that. You, and right. to see somebody go, you know, you know, twice now into different states, land they've never been on and, and kill deer in this situation. And I mean, essentially you were in your work clothes and, yep. and, and got it done. Uh, it, it's, it's both uh, refreshing, but mm-hmm. hilarious. Like I say, given the, I mean, and so, you know, where, where we live here um, in Muskegon, Michigan is where St. Locke is headquartered. My mom went to school with uh, the, uh, okay owner uh the creator of of scent lock i had one of the scent the first scent lock suits that i bought out of his basement so i mean okay. we're very familiar in this area with uh you know the company and everything it's done a lot for the the hunting uh, industry and and things here in the town um but it's just it's hilarious to see the both sides of 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 that coin and to go in and do it so that's why yep. i'm saying like you know you're in camp with John Eberhart, who has a you know the video with the tethered guys of his scent control regimen, and yep. uh, it's just it was awesome to see. So yeah, I could never do it. He does. I I am a big sweater. I get a little bit warm than I sweat, so I could never ever make that work. I mean, if you if you look in the video, once we got to the back of that ridge, I was just full of sweat when we moved for the second time because I left a lot of my clothes on. I was just all sweated up and it would just never work for me. And so was there anything that you took away from like that hunt in Michigan um, that you're going to use going forward or, um, you know? Yeah. My, my biggest learning experience from Michigan um, is that, and Dan kept pointing it out too. That, that's the other cool part is not many people can say they hunted with Dan and fall. Right. So he's, and I always tell him, like, dude, if there's something you think I'm doing that is stupid or ridiculous or I need to adjust a little bit, just tell me. Like, I want to know. I want the feedback. I don't care how you say it. You're not going to hurt my feelings. And the big thing I kept doing, like, there was a buck. Um, it didn't get shown very well in the videos, but there was a buck up in that cattail swamp. And I looked at it on a map, and I just dove right in. And that buck was bedded not that deep in. And had, I could have sat right on the dike and shot that thing. Um, and I, I actually backed up and tried to shoot it a different night, and it caught my wind. I didn't see him, but I heard him come through the water and he caught my wind and bucked out of there. Um, but just too often I just dived too deep. That was a huge learning lesson for me. I, I, I overthink stuff a lot. So that was huge. <laughs> and even the buck I killed, I wanted to go 20 yards deeper and take like, no, we need to hold up right here. And he was exactly correct. Yeah. I did that um, just, a, a week or so ago. I just kept going further and further, looking for sign, looking for sign. And I found, you know, like how you mentioned that faint trail. And I yep. found that, that faint trail, but it didn't seem like it was going anywhere. There was water everywhere. And I went yep. 40 yards further and uh, found a couple oak trees, you know, right on the edge of bedding. And I thought, this is going to be it. And the yep. wind was blowing back to that faint trail. And I got busted, you know, right at, you know. 20 minutes before last light, you know, and actually that's that's the way you learn. Yeah. And, and that's what it is, you know, to, to watch you guys, to watch the hunting public, to watch Dan and, you know, Dan does a great job in his videos and, you know, the videos that 
that you've got on the hunting beast of breaking down like why and how. Um, yeah. The one thing we don't get is the backstory of the the hundred blown opportunities or whatever. You know, that's the problem I think a little bit with YouTube and and, and Facebook and social media versus um, you know kind of what you were referencing there on the forum is you don't get that. You know, everybody wants to show the highlights. They don't want to show the times that they screwed it up, right? Right, right. So, um, and so one of the things that we got to see on the, um, that public land challenge, and we've seen it a few different times in, in your videos is, um, you've come up with that, that sparrow, that spare arrow, um, that, that goes on there. So kind of, how did that come about? So I, I've had, um, one of my problems, I have a little bit of target panic and one of my problems is, um, I, I bring my pin when I have a deer in front of me, I'll draw back and I'll bring my pin down onto the deer and I freak out and I shoot and I, I've spined many deer. I have a bunch of videos of me spining all these different deer. I've killed a lot of good deer spining them. And I had always thought that it, and I always had to shoot a second time. And I had always thought that it was my bow. It was too slow. So I bought a different bow that was way faster and I hit, I hit the darn thing high still. And uh, I figured out that it was a target panic, which is why I was hitting it high. But in the process of all that, um, I, I needed a second arrow all the time. Um, and one of the one that I shot in the, I've got an Instagram video. If you watch it, um, it was 149 inch buck. He came in, I shot him. It was high in the lungs, but he actually ran closer to me and stood and stared at me. And I reached back. I had the, my arrows hung behind me and I reached back to grab my air, an extra arrow that was behind me. And he busted me doing it. You can hear the arrow clank on the tree in the video. So my quiver kind of clank on the tree and he busted me. And I thought if I had been able to just get the arrow in him quicker, that would have solved it. And in the past, what I used to do is I'd take all my quiver brackets, uh, an extra quiver bracket, and I would just drill it into the, into the side of the stand. But then I bought a new almost assault too, and I just really didn't feel like drilling a hole into the side of that stand. So I had my buddy machine me a block of, uh, just a block of machined aluminum with two holes in it. And that was kind of big and gaudy, and I couldn't get it at the angle I wanted it. So then he machined me a round one, and uh, it worked pretty slick because you can, the, the, you have to see the way it works. It's almost impossible to describe, to describe it without seeing it, but you can literally have your quivers at whatever angle you want. You can have them on your left and on your right, and you just reach down and grab one um, with very minimal motion. You can look down and see it if the deer's kind of looking at you or whatever. Um, for me, it's, it's all about, I mean, when you have those things happen, um, taking care of those little details. And, and that, that's one thing, too, when I go back to, like, the face mask thing. It's probably a good idea to wear a face mask because that one time I have a, mature buck come in and look up at me and see my bleach white face i'm going to regret it so it's just all those little details and that's one little problem that i felt had never been solved and and uh my i made made one for myself and my buddies are like well that's cool i want one so i figured what the heck i have the uh dan uh helped me out and he uh dan mario and robin they got it up on their site and um they worked they were pretty slick it worked pretty well and so you mentioned that you were um saddle hunting that first day um how does that mm-hmm. work with the saddle the, the saddle platform or what are you doing with it um on that yeah it it doesn't work very well on the saddle i had it on the i still have it on the bottom of the platform but the way your heels hang over on the edge of the platform you'd hit it all the time so uh you just kind of have to do what everybody else does and stuff it up in a branch or leave it on your bow or um, a lot of those guys have the accessory hooks it just doesn't work well from a saddle okay Somebody, yeah, because somebody could probably make a little bracket that goes on a strap or something that would work well. Okay. A lot of guys just hook it, but okay. Yeah, I, w- I was curious about that. Yeah, we um, yeah 
we always had the quickie quivers and had those screwed to the side of our stands for forever. But yeah, yeah, you yeah. end up with a tight spot or a Matthews or one of the trophy Ridge ones. And, uh, it, it's not as easy to come by an extra bracket and then, you know, the cam no, that's down a there and stuff part. like that. Yeah. That's, that's a very tricky part. The, the tight spot ones you can find fairly easily, but they are 30 bucks. So it's not cheap, you know, once you, once you get everything all on there, but the, the way I look at it in this, I mean, this is going to sound like a sales pitch. If if it's the difference between um, getting that second shot off and getting the buck or not getting the second shot off and not getting the buck, I spend all those hours in a year. Um, I want everything right. I want everything perfect, you know, so I can't make any excuses for myself. I mean, I, I get as anal as at the beginning of every year. I pull apart my entire lone wolf and I'll, you're supposed to use the um, bowstring wax and I'll wax every single washer. Because if, if I don't wax it and I go out and have a big buck coming in that tree stand pops or squeaks, I'll be pissed off at myself because I know that I should have sat down one night with a beer and just waxed all my washers. So <laughs> just all those little details, eliminate all those things so you have no excuses not to get a deer. Right. And so where can somebody, you know, if they're interested in that, where can they check those out at? Yep. So they're on the um, hunting, hunting Beast Gear website. You have to go, not the Hunting Beast website, but the Hunting Beast gear website. You just Google search it and you can find them on there. we got plenty of them for people. That's awesome. Check them out. And so what's your, your bow setup and your your arrows and all that? Sure. So I had initially, I was initially shooting the Halon 6 and I'm still working on my target panic thing. I, and Andy Mays been kind of helping me through that a bit. And the one thing he mentioned about the Halon 6 was that it's kind of top heavy and, and I would definitely agree with him. There's always just been something a little off about it. So this year I switched to the Triax and it shoots really nice. I mean, I like the way it shoots. Um, in terms of a release, God, I can't remember what it is. I think it's like a, I couldn't even tell you. Um, uh, bow sight, I like my HHAs. You can custom order those HHA um, single pin adjustable sights with a smaller pin. And I like that too because some of the pins that you get, um, just like if you go to your, your archery shop and pick up a true glow sight, they're just so big that when you draw back on a deer at 30 yards, it covers the, the entire vitals. And with the, they've got that, like a rheostat or whatever they call it on mm-hmm. the HHA site where you can dim it down and get the pin to be nice and small. Um, I like that. I know a lot of guys get way more technical with their archery equipment than I do. Um, and then I just like my HHA QAD rest. That works well. And what are you shooting for broadheads? Uh, the G5 Striker, and I guess they just discontinued those and turned them into like a so something different. They're bigger. I don't, I don't know. I just snagged up two more packs of of them as they're going as they're discontinuing them. They've always worked well for me. I used to work at an archery shop, and uh, Matthews would, every year Matthews would do a bunch of tests as to what broadheads flew the best out of their bows, and uh, the G5 Striker was G5 Striker and the Slick Tricks for fixed blade were two of the best flying broadheads, and. Uh, I've just stuck with them. They work really well. Yeah, like it, I think I said it on the last couple podcasts, but I always loved it. You know, we, you know, are bow hunting podcasts. We ask everybody their bow hunting setups. But um, what's awesome is like, you know, you talked about like breaking down, taking apart your stand, and waxing yep. everything. And you're like, oh, my bow is this. I can't remember my release. Um, you know, it's it, the guys that are. I mean, I feel like the guys that are consistently killing big deer, you know, at a good clip are Mm -hmm. spending most of their time making sure that 
their gears right, they're doing all of the scouting, they're figuring out the setups, and then they, whatever their bow is, whatever their broadhead, you know, they know that they're going to be within, you know, X amount of yards and that they're going to be proficient. They're not saying, okay, well, I need to shoot 70 yards and I need to be, uh, you know, everything. And it, it's a really uh, interesting, um, you know, kind of like case study on different individuals versus like where their priorities lie, I guess. So, so you're saying like with the big buck killers, you're noticing a slight lack of priorities around the archery equipment. They just want to know if they're, that they're hitting what they're aiming at. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, you know, to a degree, but I think it's like that they okay. don't, they don't, they're not necessarily saying like everything has to be, they're not as meticulous with their bow setup as they are their stand, their entry and setup. Um, sure. Yeah, I could understand that to a degree. I, I do think I personally need to get a little bit more detailed with it. Um, and, and like even with the, with my rest, I used to have this old um, Alpine drop away. And as you drew back, the your cable slide would slide across that bar and the rest would slowly come up. Well, one morning that bar was sticky and the rest, sling, the rest kind of like, it was like a slingshot, like it flickered up mm-hmm. and I shot my arrow into my sight and the buck ran off. <laughs> so I mean, just to say I haven't gone through and tried a lot of different things, I definitely have, you know, but. Oh, for sure. For sure. You, you get those things that work and you stick with them. So I think that's pretty much all we've got for this evening. Um, so where can people follow along with everything that you're doing, Joe? And, um, you know, if they've got questions or anything more on this. Yep. So all of my stuff that I, that I put out is on uh, the Hunting Beast page, Dance Hunting Beast on YouTube. Um, I do a little bit of posting on the forum. I have a hard time keeping up with that. So not as much lately. Um, and then I have my Instagram page. Well, as the Hunting Beast Instagram page, you can find some of my stuff on. And those are, that's about it. Well, awesome. Like I said, I really appreciate you taking the time for us. And I know that you're, you're busy and you're in, uh, in high demand, uh, here you're headed to Ohio. So good, good luck here. And, uh, you know, thanks again. Yeah. Good luck to yourself in Missouri. Should be exciting. For sure. Thanks, man.